I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. Good day, guys. And we have with us today Chris Day from Everyday Sustainable Living. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, guys. Um, now, Chris is a, a permaculture expert, and he runs workshops on sustainable living and is passionate about educating people on ways to live more in tune with the environment. Is that fair to say, Chris? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Now, we've known each other for the better part of 20 years, right back in the uni days when I used to get a box of food, a mystery box of organically grown food from you. Yep, yep, from a food co-op that we started with a small collective there, yep. The Flinders Environmental Action Group, if my memory serves me correctly. Oh, well done. <laughs> so, good stuff, and we never knew what we were going to eat that week, and then Chris would sort that out, and that we'd make food from, from what was in that box. So, yep. Now, you're here, you've been here uh, during the week. We're making a veggie garden here at Animals Anonymous headquarters to feed us and the staff and to feed the animals, and um, it's a fascinating process. It's something that I am passionate about although you don't hear me talk about it too often i always talk about local native plants and i talk about human overpopulation and all these things are solutions to a lot of the environmental issues but being sustainable at home is is just massive and you're helping us get involved in that Mm. such an important thing isn't it yeah definitely and i think it sort of helps people um get in touch with that sort of self-reliance or community reliance. Um, I think the whole idea of self-sufficiency in this day and age is a bit tricky because I think we are very reliant on each other, on our connections and on other things. But that that idea of we can provide for ourselves and our friends at least small amounts. Um, you know, we're not expecting to 100% feed us. Um, but, you know, the more you do and the... Um, the, the more you can grow, even if that's just little things, it, it you know brings you into a bit more um, connection with the, the seasons and and with what's growing, and you know you'll try things that you might not have otherwise tried. So yeah, no, I find it's quite quite inspirational. I get that, and you're walking out into your garden and you're grabbing some food. There's no packaging, there's mm-hmm. no transportation, um, there's no money changing hands. Once you've set the system up, you can. Um, just just go out there and get something with no chemicals on it Yep. Um, and, and cook it right up. You can get a bit of salad for your barbecue, fresh, vine-ripened fruit. I mean, it's it's amazing. Um, more people don't do it because it probably takes a lot of time and energy, do you think? Or Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a bit of a barrier too with the, the lack of sort of understanding how easy it is. But I, I think also part of that is a lot of people don't have soil. So, you know, one of the things we look up there and you've got bedrock in some, some areas and a lot of these new houses that are, are built, all that soil is scraped away, sold off, and then people are led with, left with subsoil or rock. So people try and grow something in that and it won't grow because they don't have the soil which supports the life of the plants and supports all of us, um, that topsoil. And if you don't have the soil, then it's very hard to then grow something in so i think that's another big hindrance um for people um is that it's you know it's difficult because they don't have it there and they they might not be skilled up with that um unlike sort of our grandparents um who a lot of them would always have a a a veggie garden um partly out of necessity through the you know the depression and all that sort of stuff um and partly just because that's what you know they they did that's what their dad did etc um or their mum or both etc well, I had an auntie that was alive during the Depression in England and she used to, uh, well, the whole family would go out and poo in the garden and they'd dig it around in there and that'd be part of their their, their compost for their food. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, people would go, oh, gross, but in fact that's probably not so crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think from a from a health perspective you've got to be a bit careful of, of obviously getting your... You, you poo in touch with your food. Um, <laughs> but um, there are ways around it. So, I mean, we, we're in one of the driest states and the driest continent in the world in South Australia. Um, it, it is pretty crazy that we're using fresh drinking quality water to, to flush our faeces down into the ocean when we could be, with very simple technology, composting that in a, in a sealed vessel um, over a period of, say, six months, 
um, and then putting that into, say, under a fruit tree or, you know, something like that. So you, you don't, you're not growing your carrots in it, but you're still providing, you, you're closing that nutrient loop and you're putting that nutrient back into the soil where we need it rather than in the ocean, which definitely doesn't need more nutrients because that's why we've seen all the die-off of all the seagrass and the increase of turbidity and, you know, all that sort of thing that we're finding in a, in a, in a gulf. We're having big big trou- troubles with increased sediment loads and nutrient loads and things like that. So, And that's a really simple thing. Saves you on water. Um, I notice here you've got some rainwater tanks. I'm not sure if you're totally off rainwater or not. but Yeah, we don't have mains water Yeah, you all. don't have mains water. So for, for people who don't have mains water, that really starts – you really start to think about it. Um, you really start – well, every time I flush the toilet, there goes 12 litres of water. And – and not only that, but I'm contaminating a, a useful, you know, a, a usable, drinkable source of water into something I can no longer use. So that's where, you know, things like compost toilets and things like that sort of come into play. That's interesting. And I have thought about getting a second toilet on the property. And I don't want to get one of those chemical toilets. Mm-hmm. So a composting toilet, that's... Um what is it like sawdust or something like that or yeah pretty much so i mean you can there are council approved systems as well which is really good um the basic principle of them is i mean to to simplify it is you've got a barrel um that you 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 know do your business in (laughs) um and that barrel is sealed so it's not going into the um into the ground you quite often you'll have a little liquid overflow which goes into say a a, a sump or something like that for you know when you do weeds in there um and then then every time you make a deposit you add a a, you know add a cup of sawdust or some sort of carbon to to cover it and to help balance it um slowly as that fills um there's different systems but then you know you'll take that barrel away and you'll put a new barrel in you'll leave that for six months and by that time put a handful of worms in there they eat it whatever else and then you dig a hole bury it and away you go so that's the simple version but um yeah so clivus multrum is one that comes to mind which is a um a compost toilet which is approved um and there's a few other few others out there and you know they're pretty pretty simple things quite often aeration is a big thing so um they'll have a, a pipe coming up through the roof with a little 12 volt fan um, so yeah, I mean, we, we run a compost toilet, it's pretty simple, but we've yeah basically got a little 12 volt fan that runs off a car battery and that keeps it ventilated so it never smells. And then every time you use it, you just put a, a handful of sawdust in there and it's great. <laughs> so is this something that goes in your house? Like it goes in the like bathroom of your house or is it? Yeah, I mean, it can. I mean, yeah. a lot of the time what you'll need is you'll need it to be higher. You'll need to be higher than the system itself. So if you're on a cement slab, that can be a little bit tricky, obviously, because you can't dig a hole in your floor very easily and, and, and sink it down. Um, so a lot of it works quite well in a sort of in a place with a slope or a place that has a wooden floor or, or whatever like that. So Interesting. I could just have one out in the bush, couldn't I? You could. Amongst, that'd be awesome. Yeah. And you can get That's ones nice. that are approved for weekenders and stuff like that. So, you know, they're pretty simple, simple structures and yeah. Well, Chris, thanks for coming on. It's <laughs> a nice little segue into yeah. compost toilets. Steve, come over tonight and we'll talk about plants <laughs> and things with a guy that's doing some planting for, and all we've talking about so far is human shit. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Mate, soil, you said the word soil. I mean, that's just a massively important word. It's the most probably underrated part of the environment, but it's got all the life hasn't it what well, it should mm. I mean that's what it requires I mean I look at my property here and we've got orchids and lilies and things that won't survive without the soil microbes you can't just plant them anywhere you know, there's, a, there's a real interconnectivity between the fungi um, and yep. you know all that sort of mycorrhizae fungi and the, um, the microbes and I don't know much about it but I mean can you talk a little bit about soil for us mate yeah for sure uh, it is something that I think is is quite often overlooked um, potentially or especially uh, with our sort of current conventional agricultural model. Uh, sort of soil is treated like dirt. Um, so it's treated as a media to grow something in and it's nitrogen, potassium, calcium, phosphorus is added. Um, and it's sort of almost treated like a hydroponic media where you pour on your chemicals and you put your seed in and then you spray it with herbicides and then you put your 
chemicals on and, and, and eventually you end up with a product. Um, the, I guess the, the issue with that is naturally soil um, is almost self, you know, self-supporting. It, it's, it's full of life, fungi, microbes and, th- and different protozoas, good and bad, and basically cycling the nutrients efficiently um, without the need for pouring on all these these chemicals, which actually will continue to damage the soil. So, um, yeah, that's one of the, the the big issues there. Is if we start treating our soil like soil, uh, the living organism with it, which it is, then um, it'll start to produce more nutrient dense food, which is another thing, another good reason why you know to grow your own food because a lot of this, a lot of the stuff we get in the shops is is grown on basically almost sand you know it's lost all its structure and all its nutrients and it's just got its um key key sort of things in there to make the plant grow but it's missing all its trace minerals and elements and things like that and then that comes into human health you know where people uh, get having problems with weight and and obesity and all that sort of stuff and that sort of comes back down to they don't they're not feeling satisfied when they eat you know, because they're not getting those minerals and nutrients which they would be getting if they were living a more traditional lifestyle. So they just keep eating. And the, and the food that's easy and quick is those things that are high in fat, high in salt, high in sugar. Um, and then obviously you, you put on weight and, and, and the, the sort of downhill spiral. So a um, bit of a segue into, into that. But it's, it, I think it's, it's very much all related and... Um, I think if we start thinking of soil and the soil food web, so there's a lady that sort of um, coined the term the soil food web uh, called Dr. Elaine Ingham. And so she she's looked into these mycorrhizal fungi and all these different um, fungi and bacteria and, and um, protozoa which eat bad protozoas and, you know, worms and all these things which are all part of that soil food web, so this interconnected web which if looked after and cared for, will actually ever increase. Um, and um, one of those things is soil carbon. So Australia's a very old continent. Um, a lot of our farming methods have come from, from Europe, um, where which has very young, deep soils in some parts of America, etc. And they're used to being able to cultivate and continually sort of uh, for lack of a better word, thrash the landscape and it, and it deals with it. Uh, humid, more humid landscapes, so so landscapes that, that don't experience long periods of, of, of drought. Um, and and what's, what that's sort of caused is that, that very, very quick erosion of, of topsoil, the very quick detriment of, of landscapes and landscape functions, erosion gullies, um, dehydration, land clearing, of course, um, and then the, the downward spiral of, of production. Um, you know, how many animals you can graze per, per acre, how much crop you get per, per acre and, and how much fertiliser you're going to have to keep putting on more and more every year. So, um, yeah, so that's a bit about soil. <laughs> so if you've got soil that's um, a bit, for a better word, for, for a better word, like a bit dead, Yep. At the moment, like that can just be brought back to life just by planting some stuff in there, um, and that will sort of bring it to life itself. Or uh, is there, are there certain things that you should start with if your soil is not that great? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, a big thing is compost. So, um, yeah, composting your your food waste, but also in it depends on the scale. If you're talking a meter by a meter, it's very easy to compost a small amount of, of soil yourself, but there are also you can buy in compost fairly cheaply when you think about the amount of work um, that goes into it. Um, so a big thing is actually getting that composted material which has your carbon and your nitrogen and your microbes in it. So sometimes you will have to introduce um, some good guys, basically, and some good nutrients to kick off the process. Yeah. Um, and then once you've started that, then that will continue seeding. Um, so yeah and and there's certain plants which are which are good for getting sort of soils working so legumes so things like peas and beans and things like that Um, but they themselves also need an inoculant so they won't grow just by themselves so a lot of the time if you buy a pea or a bean seed that'll be coated in an inoculant which which has the microbes to help that 
seed grow. So it's part of what science has realised that these these plants will actually need a symbiosis of 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 beneficial microbes to get them to to grow properly. They won't grow in you know dead soils. We're seeing a lot at the moment in Australia. We've got a bit of a drought happening, mm-hmm. and we're seeing all these aerial images of just denuded landscapes, no vegetation, and really hungry animals. Um, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, it. I mean, are we a victim of a drought, or do do we not prepare for the drought? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so uh, it's a, it's a difficult one because it, it, some people can get quite emotional about it, which is fair enough. You see the graphic images of you know skinny cows and dead cows and sheep and whatever else, and people saying my livelihood's over. Um, but I think it's it it is that sort of failure to prepare um in in terms of sort of what we were saying earlier before the show it's it's we're in a constant drought in australia it's it's almost it should be expected that we're dry we don't get regular rainfall and and we can't always rely on that so we need to start thinking our farming practices need to start um changing away from the european and and english sort of farming methods which we've seen in the last 200 years haven't worked for australia they work over there you know it's more humid better soil younger soil here we need to start thinking about a more of a more of a regenerative um farming practice where we're trying to improve the landscape we're trying to i guess it's it's a lot of it too is about changing the psychology you know so changing the climate of people's minds um is very much a part of of getting used to our climate so if you change what's in between your ears then it's easier to see what you're actually part of this bigger system and then start to think about oh okay well we're in a a landscape which has prolonged periods of droughts sometimes it rains sometimes it doesn't how can we how can we make it so we make ourselves more future proof more resilient you know more you know adaptable um and i think a lot of that comes down to there's a big movement about uh, if, if you search regenerative agriculture and also holistic management, those two things together. Um, a, a big part of agriculture in Australia is livestock. Um, so that's, you know, most of what you're seeing is these denuded stretches of lands for thousands of kilometres. But a, a lot of that is due to overstocking set stocking and too high numbers of animals um what's what's set stocking ah good question so set set stocking is um when you keep um the animals in an area for an extended period of time so you're not you're not forcing them to move so holistic management um termed by a a fella called um alan savory from africa he, he worked out that the natural patterns of these herding animals like cows, hoofed, hoofed animals, bison, except buffaloes, etc., they will naturally move through a landscape as a herd and what will chase them is the lions or the you know, wolves or whatever. And so they're, they're never just sitting in a paddock like you see around the hills and whatever else for day in, day out, for half of the year, even all of the year sometimes, some people that don't move their stock. And so what that means is they'll come into an area, they'll disturb it a bit, they'll eat a bit, they'll eat a lot of different things and they'll make a bit of disturbance and then they'll move on. And, and what that does is it, it doesn't deplete the landscape so they don't eat it right down, they don't constantly browse on plants and kill them. Um, gives, so gives them a chance to come back. Gives them a chance to come back. So the idea is that you're rotating your, your stock in a... In a, in a in almost like a patchwork effect. So you're moving them from paddock A to paddock B to paddock C to paddock, you know. So you've moved them, say, 15 different paddocks before they come back to paddock A. So what's happened in paddock A by then, it's had that disturbance, it's had that manure, it's had that browsing, and then it's had a rest. And so that it, it's got the nutrients and everything else, so it gets a chance to regenerate. And then, and then the cows come in, mow it down a bit and then move on. So in, in that way, you're sort of creating a patchwork in your landscape, whether it's on 10 acres or 1,000 acres, 100,000 acres. Um, the idea is that you're, you're moving your stock 
um, over an area, but not but moving them quickly so that they're not causing damage to that area and, and depleting all the plants. Um, there's some um, perennial grasses, so ever everlasting grasses, so they come, you know, they, they grow like trees. Um, they don't die back in, in summer that have been dated three, four hundred years old. So, well, um, yeah, so a lot of the our native grasses here, you know, you might see a patch of native grasses, but that native grass might have been there for a hundred years, but you don't sort of think about that because it's a grass. You, you see the, you know, hundred-year-old tree and go, oh, wow, hundred-year-old tree. Um, one of the one of the things um, I've seen is you don't see people running around hugging the pasture. We need to be <laughs> <laughs> hugging the grasses. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, so grasses are one of the quickest ways to to regenerate landscapes. So they're, they're the quickest thing to basically put carbon back into the soil because they grow quickly. When they're browsed, their roots break down and recede and break down into carbon and humates and, and all these yummy things for all the exudates, I think is another fancy word, basically food for the fungi and the, and the bacteria. And then, and then they die off and they feed the bacteria and they go, oh, great. And then, you know, so they then start giving nutrients back to the plant and then the plant sort of goes, oh, great, and starts growing. So that's their nutrient cycle, which doesn't sort of, necessarily rely on fertilizers and it doesn't rely on as much rainfall because it's you know you've got the moisture in the soil you've got the ground cover that's another big one so you're seeing all these dry places yes they've been in drought and you know they still might have been in drought if they've been um, managing the land holistically but they would have more ground cover which means they'd have more humidity which means they'd have more grass excuse me um which means you know they wouldn't be in such such these dire sort of conditions um and i guess the other thing is appropriate stocking rates so you know if you if you're driven by your bottom line and you need a thousand cows per thousand acres or something like that you need to start asking yourself well is a thousand cows on a thousand acres too many cows in our climate yeah probably is so winding that back a bit you know maybe 500 or 100 or whatever um, it, it really depends on on what landscape you're talking about but working out your your stocking rate per area that's going to be able to continue um so working out that longer term sort of the plan where you, all right with this many animals we can continue living on this country we can continue we can look after this country um but if we if we go too high then we're going to go backwards. So I think that's that's also part of it. This is the type of thing that environmental scientists talk about a lot and have been for several decades now. Why is it why is it so hard for farmers to adopt some of these practices? Is it is it financially viable for them to do so maybe only in the long run but not the short term or is it that's how we've always done it? That's how my granddad did it. That's how we do it. Mm. Why, why do you think um, some of these practices aren't more regularly employed? Yeah, it's a good question, and I, I think I think part of that is is what you said. You know, it's how we've always done it. You know, it's what used to work. But I think part of what needs to happen as well is that working anymore? Okay, it's not working. We need to change. We need to adapt. We need to we need to start thinking about ways which are going to work. So. And, and it's tricky because, you know, speaking to, you know, we've just moved to a, a rural area and, and, and speaking to some of the, the farmers around, you know, they, farmers aren't bad people by any means. And, and, and you ask any farmer and they're going to want to look after their country. So they're not purposely trashing the country or, you know, wrecking the country. They're not in, intentionally damaging it. But, but, but a lot of it is, is either a, a lack of, the holistic understanding of the landscape and the cycles, or they might even have that. Like, so tending to a few farmers around us, they they understand a lot about what's going on there. They're on that land every day, so they they know what's going on. But they're almost locked into this system, which which sort of perpetuates itself. So, oh well, I need to grow the barley for my brother to feed his cows. You know, so this is how I have to do it. Or you know, I need to grow this many cows because then, you know, that pays off for my $300,000 tractor, you know. So they're sort of, they're locked into this big industrial cycle where they're, 
you know, the, the, the cattle's a commodity, you know, it's not direct marketed, it's, it's shipped overseas. A lot, of our, a lot of our food, a lot of our cattle and, and sheep are actually not for Australia. They're actually exported. So we're exporting our, our minerals and our nutrients via our, our, our livestock. So, I mean, that's, that's something we need to start sort of, you know, is that working for us? Or is it actually not benefiting us? How can we sort of think about ways that are, are going to work? And I think that's where the, the, you know, trying to think more holistically and, 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 and being part of the system rather than being part of the mechanical system, the mechanised system, actually realising we are part of this ecosystem. I think that's where I was saying before about the climate of the mind, you know, changing that, that paradigm that, oh, OK, we're part of this system. How do we integrate in it? Um, like like our you know um, indigenous brothers and sisters that have managed this land for over sixty thousand years, um, in two hundred years we've managed to make some pretty massive de- detrimental changes here. You know they they managed to 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 manage it and improve it because that was part of their culture and and their religion so to speak was was to make sure that there was always something for the next person or the neighbor or the the you know the son the daughter the granddaughter the great 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 you know grandson their ethos was always make it better always sort of make sure that's continuing so they you know they were working within those limits and passing down that knowledge um over generations um generations and you know thousands of years and it seems like every individual in a tribal culture has that connection with the land because that's where they dwell. Mm. You know, we tend to dwell in these concrete boxes called homes and yep. you know, and these metal vehicles called cars, which are probably more plastic now. But um, <laughs> well, I mean, which are, and those things are great. Don't get me wrong, and technology is awesome. But um, like you said earlier, we miss that connection with the land and the seasons. Mm. Yeah, and I think I think it's um, around about ninety percent of the Australian population lives in an urban setting. So that's pr- that's a pretty huge disparity of you know if you've got ninety percent of your population basically living on the coast in, a, in, in an urban setting, setting, and only ten percent of people living on on you know more outer areas and regional areas, it, it it it's a lack of people in the landscape. Um, which which then brings into the me- mechanism and the large scale. You know, farms are getting bigger and bigger. They're owned more and more by corporations and corporate interests rather than families. So the whole mindset changes. There's not people out there physically working the land as much as there as there used to be, um, which I think is is a big thing. I'd imagine like population growth. If you look over like from fifty or a hundred years back, mm-hmm. um, the, the population growth that's happened that they're probably under massive pressures as well to increase what they're producing. Um, so that's got to be part of it from their point of view as well. You know, they're, mm. they're, they're, they've probably got pressures to produce as much as they can. And yeah, maybe at the moment, like maybe we're maybe it's now they're crossing a line of too much, and things need to change. But. Yeah, and I think it's that commodity market thing where mm. the, the farmers don't set their price anymore. The, the, their prices are set for them. Mm. And that, that's a huge game changer. If you, you know, if I was growing 100 lambs and I'm, I'm, I'm banking on, you know, 250 bucks a lamb and then, oh, oh, oh great, you know, I've got 100 lambs, um, I'm going to get 250 bucks a lamb and I've budgeted my, my whole year and business on that and then I get to the market and they say, oh, sorry, mate, we're only paying you 100 for those. You go, well... You know what are you meant to do? So, yeah. I, I think that's that's a big part of it as well. That whole industrial complex is is setting the the tone and setting the yeah. prices. Yeah, it's not that they wanted to really increase and and put their land under that struggle of yeah. trying to live and trying to reproduce it. That's right. It's, yeah. Oh, you look at the dairy farmers. I mean, they're getting bugger all per litre. Mm. Um, yeah. It's hardly even makes it. You don't see many dairies opening up anymore because mm. it's just not a viable thing because they're paid so so little per per litre of milk so then the practices start to go downhill because they don't have the the you know the spare capital to go into it um and i mean we're not just growing for australia of course we're growing a lot for export the majority of our grain and and meat and dairy and all that sort of stuff is actually leaving the country it's not just for australia um so i mean that's something you know, I guess we have a, a global responsibility to help provide food, 
um, to yeah. some degree, but I think we also have a, a responsibility to, to make sure that we're looking after our own land to support our own needs and ex- excess, you know, is exported or traded for something that we can't grow, not this sort of trading 100 million tonnes of wheat with India for another 100 million wheat tons of wheat from from india you know so to and from we've we've traded the same thing but just because it's good for the gdp so i mean that's that's the sort of weird stuff that sort of that happens in this it's almost like we, we we put people first whereas if we put the land first we're putting future generations as well yeah in fact into that as well so mm. we're very short sighted mm. it's the same thing reprogramming people to the way they're thinking of the climate of the mind. Mm. I like that. Mm. Do you think um, these all these growers markets? That, I mean, you go to the growers markets, don't you, Steve? Yeah, on the Sunday. Great. Yeah. Mm. You think that that's they're they're a good thing? Oh, definitely. And I think it's really good for people to have a connection with their farmer and with their food. Uh, it's such a big difference. You go to a supermarket and there's carrots there, there's potatoes there, and there's no farmer behind that. You know, you can't go, oh, so how did your carrots go this year? Oh, we had a shit of a year. Mm. Or, oh, we had a great year or whatever. You go to the, the farmer's markets and, and you're talking to that person and you can find out what's going on and they'll, you know, they'll say, oh, well, we've got heaps of kale at the moment because of this, but such and such absolutely smashed our potatoes. And you go, oh, cool, well, I'll buy some more kale off you. You know, so there's that interaction of, of support. Um, there's a model called community-supported agriculture, which is basically where you you get together as a, as a, as a group. It's sort of like a cooperative, um, but it's a bit more than that. So what happens is, let's say there's 10 farmers and 100 people. Um, you start a community-supported agriculture model um, where you say, I'm going to give you 40 bucks a week for the next year and you're going to provide me with 40 bucks worth of food a, a week. And the farmers then know that they need to provide X amount of capsicums, potatoes, leeks, half a, half a lamb or whatever like that. So basically that's supporting farmers directly so they're getting a better price for their product. Um, not only that, then there's also that direct link with the consumer and they, can, they have open days and they invite people around there. So, you know, there's that that sharing and that community which is another big thing which i think is 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 hard for a lot of rural people there's that isolation you know we've got one of the highest suicide rates um is regional australia you know farmers going oh it's all too much i'm all you know i'm isolated it's all going to you know poo yeah, so to speak else and-, and um you know so you've got a high suicide rate and a high sort of youth you know all that sort of stuff and that's all linked to that that feeling useful or, or, or worthy um, and I think when you've got that direct link with people versus that link with a, someone who's trying to screw you down for every penny you're worth oh, I'm only going to give you five cents for those potatoes and I'm going to sell them for five dollars you know you, you, set, you meet someone and go oh well you know oh that's too bad you go I don't care if those potatoes are a bit damaged I mean they still taste good they taste much better than the ones we get you know so it's that link but you wouldn't be able to get those potatoes in any of the bigger supermarkets. Yep, that's and, right. And one of the things that I've noticed <clears throat> when, when we moved here eight years ago and we went to the Sunday market um, at the showgrounds um, is it was super expensive. Mm-hmm. It, it really, I know, like, you, you know, you're helping it, but, but sometimes it, it was sort of super expensive. Now, I think it's on a par, if not cheaper, than supermarkets now. Um, and you're getting some great stuff. Is that as a result of more people supporting... I think it is. I think it's because, yeah, because when we used to go, there was always quite a few people there. But when you go there now, it's there's a lot of people go to that. Um, and some people are sold out by 10 o'clock. So, you absolutely. know, you have to go to yep. certain stalls yep. early and that, that makes yep. the farmer feel better because they're selling their produce. Mm. And, yep. and yep. we've literally, as you say, we've actually got to know a couple of farmers that, you know, one mm-hmm. week will say, oh, we'll be back next week or the week after. Can you bring us something you know whatever it is um some some bones and things um and they'll have all that and they'll bring it to us a certain mm. cut if we want that or a certain vegetable and they'll bring it down for us and it'll be sitting there in a bag and yeah it's, yep. it's amazing but yeah you probably couldn't get that 
and I know there was there was something a little while ago. The supermarkets were actually getting really scared of these farmers markets because they're becoming so popular. Mm. There was a, a thing passed that was trying to make it very hard for farmers markets to mm. to sort of exist. I mean, they're still managing, and yeah. I think it'll continue to grow as as more and more people realise that there isn't that connection with the food, and and well, where's the where is where is it coming from? What's in it? You know, and and. And like we were saying before, is that that nutrients in the food and the and the the all those trace minerals and things are only going to be there if that's farmed in a in an ecological way, in a in an organic way, or in a you know a way which they're looking after the place. Yeah. Um, and for people to do that, for farmers to do that, they need to get a decent price for their product. Otherwise, it it's that vicious cycle where they just try and cut corners and yep. you know. Um, and they are actually, when they come to these markets, we're happy because we're getting stuff mm-hmm. at a reasonable price now yep. you know, that compares to the bigger supermarkets. And boy, we're, we're doing them a, probably a huge favour because they're getting full price that's right. for their goods. Which makes so a big difference. Yeah, that, so that's making a huge difference as mm. well. Yeah, and I think they're great. I think everyone should use farmers markets. And then that helps give a bit of hope to the next generation as well because like, there's that sort of whole stigma of, oh, you don't want to be a farmer, mate. You know, mm. It's too hard. Mm. Yeah, no money in that yeah you know and and there's not if you go down the sort of conventional bulk yeah. route but, but the way that they do it they can be a hobby farmer of, that's right of yep. fruit and veg and, and they can support a family okay. through it you know and, it, it, yeah. and it's possible if yeah. you're smart about it and you direct market about it yeah. then you can you know yeah. you can you can do pretty well and you're providing both mm. services of good food but also that, that mm. interaction and you get some crazy shaped carrots <laughs> <laughs> ones that hug each other yeah, and look like awesome. human body parts yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you hear about bus drivers all the time going on strike and um, I think teachers have gone on strike have farmers ever gone on strike I mean that'd be a big deal yeah it's a good question um, I mean in Australia I not that's coming to mind. Um, I'm sure it probably has happened, but definitely overseas, there's been whole movements, and um, like La, um, La Viva Campesino. So basically, the the movement of the peasants in um, South America has been a big thing because basically the the big the big sort of companies wanted to railroad agriculture, but but so many people depended on agriculture so heavily that there was basically a mass uprising that, that said, you know, we, we the farmers, have rights. And they, they you know, they, they brought down the government, basically, and, and told them, no, nah, this isn't on. We have rights. We should be getting, you know, a decent amount for our, for our things and, we, you know, we should be able to do it these, this sort of way. So for sure. I, th- I think in, in Australia, it, it, it's, it's, there's not that really i guess direct links so much um there's also i guess not so much of that oh well i'm not going to complain you know um, i'm not going to stir the boat they got if they don't get it for me they'll get it from somebody else yep. yeah is it i mean there must be like a farmer's union or something yeah that's, you'd think so a farmer's union iced coffee, coffee. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god only south australians know that oh, one. No. Oh my god farmers <laughs> union iced but they, they would be going completely against their consumers mm. at that point as well and that would be worrying probably to a farmer um, although maybe they need to do it at some point, yeah. but Thank there's, you there's, a, there's a consumer base of people that can't afford for things like that to happen to these big supermarkets where they do maybe pick stuff up a bit cheaper. Mm. It would be a scary thing to, well, for I mean, farmers if, to go on strike. Well, yeah. and to lose a contract if your if yeah. your whole business is is yeah. sort of um, relying on a contract with a, a bit with a big supermarket and you say oh, i'm not going to supply you anymore they go well too bad see you later we'll get someone else yeah you know, and someone else they have to, they have to stick together yeah but i mean it's funny i mean if the bus drivers go on strike people are late for work if farmers <laughs> go on strike people don't get to eat i mean chris eats because chris has a, <laughs> yeah. an organic farm at home we all go to chris <laughs> yeah we yeah there it is there it <laughs> suddenly is. we've got Sold. everyone at our place <laughs> and we'll better grow some more is. food <laughs> But that raises an interesting question. I mean, if if suddenly, let's say there was a cataclysm, how much food is there in the shops? And everybody would be rushing there for mm. it. I mean, is there yeah, two or lot. three days worth of food to feed this, what did you say, 90% of people that live in the cities? Mm. Um, and people would then be, what, just fighting for the last morsels of candy. It would be like The Walking Dead. Mm. Um, 
wouldn't have to be if we all had something sustainable at home. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's definitely a big thing. The whole food security um, movement, taking taking more control of our food system is, is like you're saying, like supporting farmers markets is a big part of that because, you know, it's all well and good to say to everyone, well, you need to grow your own food and that's great and people will, but a lot of people won't as well. So, you know, some people who aren't making that step will support a farmer's market, you know, so that's their contribution. They might they might grow some parsley or whatever else. Um, and some people might not have the space. So there's there's I guess that that room for supporting sort of agriculture and, and good agriculture even by not growing your own. And then if you've got the privilege to have the space and the ability to grow your own, awesome. You know, like do it and I think um, Lola Hubain who who came up with the one magic square you know she's saying just start with a square meter by a square meter you know so just start with a little patch and plant some things you like eating in it and do well at that and then you'll be hooked and you'll go to two three four five six square meters you know all of a sudden you'll you'll increase it but i guess it's that that's those incremental steps as well it's sort of making it achievable and attainable and, and getting that reward, you know, not, not digging up the whole backyard and then going, oh, I've got to weed 100 square metres. That's going to take me all day. You know, if you've got a couple of square metres that you've started with, you're like, oh, I can do that in half an hour and I can, you know, put my compost in there and I can do that and I can maintain that. And then once you've got that used to it, then you can sort of step that up. And I think that's that's a good good one that I try and sort of recommend to people too is, you know, small, small steps, um, you know, and, and, and build on that. I like that. And you're right, not everybody's going to, I mean, we need people to be surgeons and not yep. be toiling the land if they're <laughs> surgeons. I mean, I know what you mean. Mm. I mean, if you are a surgeon, though, you might get a lot of benefit by connecting with nature and yeah, that's right. the seasons and <laughs> the worms. <laughs> yep. The worms. <laughs> and use your poo to analyse these things. Got everything on this show. There we go. Worm <laughs> castings is an amazing fertiliser and something that people can very easily um, keep and, and is a great way to convert your waste into nutrients um, and the good thing about worms, like we were saying, they help build soil life. So they're, they're, high in, they're high in micronutrients, they're high in good beneficial bugs, fungi, all that sort of stuff. So um, we're talking about avocados before and, and oh, you know, people go to extraordinary lengths trying to grow an avocado seed. I said, oh, just chuck them in your worm farm. They'll grow. You know, you just literally put them in there because they've got the anti sort of batty functions. So they've got antifungal properties and stuff because they've got all the good microbes in there. The seed won't rot, and it's always moist, and it's got the nutrients that that seed needs, and so the seed's like, woohoo, I'm going to grow. And then you take that out, and you put it in a pot in a sheltered area, and then you're growing avocados. So, um, yeah, worm farms are definitely a great, great thing. Now, um, this is the Aussie Wildlife Show. Did you want to add anything about wildlife? Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I guess bringing it back to an Australian context, um, a book that I've read recently and a a guy that I've seen a couple of times now who I'm quite inspired by is a a fellow called Bruce Pascoe and he's written a book called Dark Emu um, and that that book basically goes into learning from 60,000 years of of, um, Indigenous culture and, um, and goes into how... They actually had really advanced um, systems of agriculture. So um, they were storing storing grains for hard times up at around Lake Frome area in South Australia. They were storing tons of 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 certain types of grains in these clay urns for for lean times, and and it goes into sort of early explorers and and how they were sort of exploring and surveying the land and and how you know they were going through fields of cultivated. Um, land that were, they were growing Murnong, which is like a, a, a native rhizome, which um, is quite a lot more nutrient dense and beneficial and suited to our climate than potatoes. But basically, like a t- uh, potato or a yam daisy is the other the name for it. They were growing hay. They were growing different seed crops. Um, some of the things were saying that you know it was so it was more delicious than any bread they'd ever had back home. You know, so light and so fluffy, and you know um, all those sort of things and um, you know, the original stone grinders and bakers actually 
are here in Australia. So they've found ancient stone mills. Is that the big, well, they call it the mother and daughter? The yeah. Big rock and the yeah, the big rock, rock and the and small the rock and the, and the little crushed depression. Seeds and, yep, yeah. crushed seeds and grains. That actually, you know, well predates sort of Egypt and all that sort of stuff. So... Um, it's really interesting when you, that sort of that whole paradigm that oh they were just natives running around and and spearing the old kangaroo that you know in, uh, extensive fish traps so you know whole river networks were you know they had little side shoots off where they'd simply just go there where the fish would run down and get a little basket catch a basket you know put the basket over that little trap for ten minutes oh there's a fish for the whole family take the basket away you know leave that off and you know whole festivals around certain flushes of of you know fish or bogon moths the bogon festival as is you know after the bogon moths that, that hatch at a certain time and really quite intricate ways of 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 being within the landscape but in a way which can continue for thousands of years really quite interesting and everyone had their own role to protect or look after their certain animal there we go there i'm i'm, I'm linking it in with the animals finally <laughs> you know so certain people would be um responsible for looking after a can the kangaroos and 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 they would you know really closely monitor how they were going and their, and their totem yeah their, their totem um so you know they would come back to the tribe and say well you know old kangaroos maybe we're eating a few too many of them at the moment maybe don't take any more females just eat the males or they actually had whole systems where to increase population density of kangaroos they'd only hunt the males because if there were less males in the system then they'd actually their populations would increase in smaller areas rather than spreading out so that's your sort of predates um, Alan Savory's holistic management, whereas they are actually sort of almost mob grazing these kangaroos and had funnel traps for them, um, yeah, fish traps and, um, you know, whole, whole agricultural systems which um, support, which went in seasonal sort of rotations and harvest and capture and storing. It sounds extraordinary because you're farming in... A forest or a woodland area. You, you, you're not just walking around on a monocultural field of mm-hmm. grass, um, and it's kind of in tune with what permaculture talks about, where mm-hmm. you've got a diversity of things. You haven't just got one species. You haven't got all your eggs in one basket. You're Very much so. Diversifying. Mm. It's fantastic. Which which relates into the drought thing. So it's that diversification. You know. So it's it's. Um, they knew that they had periods of time which might not have rained. You know, they probably had times where it might have been dry for a hundred years, two hundred years. You know, you know, over that thousands of years. So they would have then known to adapt during that time, and they would have had all different types of crops. I mean, you don't live for sixty thousand years or more just relying on wheat. You know, you're going to die out. So it's like you said, you've got that really diverse food source and very nutrient-rich food sources from different different areas um and making sure you're looking after all those animals and insects and and plants and and things like that Mm. i think definitely a leaf that we can start to think about a bit more and um try and get away from that monoculture and go more into a polyculture you know multiple multiple yields and and be more within that whether it's a forest or, I mean, a lot of savannah landscapes, so trees and grasslands or trees and pasture, and you know, so you've got that that mixture of both, you know, cultivated land and and forested land, and the hills like where we are now, you know, you don't clear the hills because that's where the rain falls, that's where the trees are, that's where a lot of biodiversity is, that's where your timber comes from, but some of the plains you might clear, you know, certain areas through fire stick farming or whatever else and crop certain bits but you'd you know they'd sort of know which areas to do which not you know not just blanket let's just put in you know one one thing and hope that works (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it'd be amazing to have a a future where people could live more in tune with the land eat a diversity of food with all the nutrients in it and we can still have technology we can still be part of moving forward in Mm. innovation but also maintaining that link with the land and um, and the health benefits associated with it. Mm. I think um, I think yeah, we really need to get heads around it now because 
obviously 100 years ago it would probably be really easy to do all the things that we're talking about now but with population as it is now mm. it's got to make it harder so we've got to get our heads around it because population's probably going to keep going up yeah so yeah we really do need to sort that out yeah definitely and i, I think I mean, one of the things with humans is, you know, we are adaptive creatures. You know, we're we're quite adaptive, and we're currently in the anthropocenic age. So basically, we as humans are having the biggest influence over the Earth over any other thing at the moment, which is pretty scary. So even floods and you know all those sort of things are actually smaller than what we're doing to the to the Earth at the moment. Um, but I think. You, like you're right, you've got to at least have these solutions out there and these ideas out there. So when stuff actually is hitting the fan, so to yep. speak, um, you know, there are there are things we can do. And, and hopefully people will start to do those things before it's sort of, oh, we're at the tipping point. Oh, gosh, um, we've only got food left for three days. What are we going to do, you know? Um, First thing I'll do is get away from people. <laughs> Go alone. Go. Well, I mean, I'd get away from the city. I think, I mean, my friend of mine was in Cyclone Tracy and people were so stupid, like none of the toilets were working, but people were still shitting in them. I think you're just around all that disease, all that filth. People started treating each other very badly. Yeah. Um, she, she said, yeah, first thing is just get away from people. And I thought that's pretty pretty wise i mean hurricane katrina was an example of when the shit hits the fan there's some kind of catastrophe you had gangs running shit mm-hmm. i mean some people just went full primitive yeah full primal um and some people were really magnanimous and generous and helping other people so it was an interesting dichotomy yeah i mean what would you do chris chris day uh she hits the fans no more food food in the shops people are hungry it's just yeah. gonna sit there and go i'd be all right I'd yeah be all right. It's, it's a good question because i think it, it it sort of shows people's true colours, like you were saying. You know, some people turn to gangsterdom and just you know pilfer things, and other people go, you know, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and help others. And uh, what would I do? I mean, it's a good question. I mean, we're in the early stages of setting up our farm, so we probably if shit hit the fan tomorrow, oh, we'd only really have lambs to eat, and you know that'd last a while, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be alright, um, Steve. You got a lot of snakes. Yeah, I've got a snake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'd be fine. You got enough. You know, you got a snake population that'll sustain you. You don't need to feed them. They just sit there, low metabolism. Yeah, eat snakes for the next three years. I reckon yeah. at your place. Uh, That's I think why we should be allowed to have tortoises. There we go. Ah. So they survived on ships. They did, didn't they? Ago. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Tortoises. Maybe that's the way forward. Tortoise <laughs> <laughs> farmer. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think uh, to to sort of bring that back, it's it. How I see if shit, I mean, shit's going to hit the fan. It's hitting the fan in some ways with the droughts and and everything else. And, you know, hay prices are going to skyrocket. People are struggling to feed their stock. You know, there's all these things that are happening. Big pharma companies are buying up all the farms and chemicals and all that sort of stuff. Um, But I think what it really comes down to is is trying to work cooperatively with other people who have a decent work ethic and a decent, you know, sort of mind on them. You know, and that can be anyone. Um, as long as you've sort of got that, well, you know, I'm going to give it a go to help. And, you know, so if you've got more people on the landscape, cultivating the landscape, you can grow a lot more food. You can do a lot more things and things really start to change. If you've got that people power um, cultivating, you know, a lot of our landscape is, like I was saying, you know, very mechanically cultivated. A handful of people own thousands of acres. Um, but I think where it comes down to is if we want to move forward is, is like the permaculture thinking and, you know, and, and regenerative thinking is, is trying to design systems where people can live on smaller parcels of land but be sort of community sufficient. So, you know, they'll help tend the, the gardens, they'll help milk the cows, they'll help make the cheese and all that sort of stuff. It's sort of bring that, bringing it back to that homesteading sort of... Um, time so where we're we're actually all involved in our in our food system whether it be for an hour a week or for for a day a week or five days a week but it actually having that involvement in cultivating and growing and and nurturing our food um i think that's the way that's the way forward i mean it's it's kind of cheesy to say but i mean you're right i think if um 
we, we can all work together, we can achieve amazing things is an understatement. Totally, yeah. And, it, and it's about, you know, like you said, it's, a, it's an animal show, so it's about looking after animals as well. There's a lot of sort of animal injustices which go on in, in sort of mainstream sort of farming, but also that loss of biodiversity. So if you've got more humans on the ground rather than machines on the ground, you see those little intricacies and say, oh, there's a, a lizard nest under that. We're going to put a log there and look after that little patch of, of, of endangered lizard. And like that little frog, what's the name? I've forgotten it. Oh, the Bibron's toadlet we have here. Bibron's toadlet. You know, you've seen that toadlet and you're looking after it by keeping that area safe and whatever else. And I think when people are in the landscape more and looking out for those things, then we start to see our biodiversity more. We start to look look after it we start to get a bigger diversity of of foodstuffs and plants which then support more animals so you know um there's a lot of studies that have sort of shown that if you put 20 percent of your farm back to natives and bush and trees and whatever else you're product you're even though you've taken up 20 percent of your landscape with unproductives in inverted commas you're you're going to increase your productivity the reason being is because you've increased your biodiversity and you've reduced your pests. So you've, you've, you've created a whole ecosystem, you've created you know, areas which evapotranspirate, so actually help produce rain and, and, and lower the water table, lower salt loads and things like that. But then you've also created this whole habitat for bugs and lizards and frogs and stuff to live, which will then come out into your crops and eat those things that otherwise in a monoculture would just absolutely be decimated by, you know, um, locusts or grasshoppers or, or mites or things like that. So those imbalances that happen. Um, if you've got that biodiversity like you're trying to do here, like, you know, restore the biodiversity in the landscape, then you're helping that whole landscape function work, which then helps, I think, people connect to that landscape. So it's this, you know, sort of... So you can almost... Mm. control your own climate to a certain extent in, to a certain extent area, yeah yeah, mm. yeah. interesting mm. uh, very well said i like that yeah <laughs> yeah excellent um is there anything else you'd like to add to the discussion as he has a big swig of wine here he goes can i just say so why, why enjoy that wine i just want to say uh, you, you presented me with a bottle today it's it's a um it's an olive oil and you produce this at your property it's day's olive oil that's right yep awesome thank you pleasure hope you enjoy it how do people get that how do people, can people believe get that? you can buy that can you buy that you can buy that yeah there we've we got, go we've got some in our shed <laughs> yankee lilla south australia a smooth start and distinct peppery finish. How do you get a peppery finish in an olive oil? Yeah, it's a good question. So, because <laughs> it's fresh, basically, because it's fresh and we've picked it green, um, it has a lot more of a punch. Um, you can't see that on the podcast, of course, but I made a little sort of... Ab- you did. Ab- ab- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you fist pumped. Um, so, uh, part, part of it is um, you've, olive oil's massive in antioxidants and, and a whole range of things, but a lot of those are because it's picked fresh and used fresh. So we sort of recommend you you want to use your oil within a year. So we picked that in May, June this year. Um, one of the big problems with olive oil and, and what I was used to before I, I sort of started getting involved in, in picking olives and making oil is olive oil in the shops is generally, you know, it's yellow, it sort of tastes like something, but not really. It's good for most things because it's doesn't really taste like much but then you start you have an extra virgin olive oil that hasn't been filtered it hasn't been chemically processed and it's fresh it's only you know a month two months three months old it it really does have those those that peppery sort of flavor so you don't even need to add pepper to your um your salad because it's it's in your oil and, and it's it's a really distinctive taste and something i really enjoy i mean we go through we probably go through about 500 mils of olive oil a week um, wow. we just use it on everything <laughs> I mean we've got quite a few litres of it but um, yeah so it's, it's a pretty amazing plant it's very adaptive you know it's a perennial plant it, you know there's some olive trees that are thousands and thousands of years old so it's a, it's a long lived thing well, Adrian's going to have a swig I'm thinking about it <laughs> I actually pour I have in the morning I have one piece of 
toast mm-hmm. and I have um, like a peanut butter and honey and I actually pour olive oil oh, yep. on my peanut butter. Nice. Um, I mean, you grow up learning fats are bad, but in fact, they're not, are they? The no, they're fats not. are good, aren't they? They're very good for you. Oh, a little bit of pepper there. That's beautiful. It's <laughs> good oil. Steve, would you like a swig of oil? I would. We're swigging oil now. But yeah, fats, I mean, good fats are really good for you and it helps lubricate your bones and your joints and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's definitely um, important. If you would like some olive oil, um, you could... Email me on edsl, Chris, C-H-R-I-S, at gmail.com and tell me where you are and we can work something out. Um, and we will have a link for that on the website as well. Yeah, that was great, mate. Look, we appreciate you doing it. I mean, you've been here since early this morning building this awesome veggie patch we look forward to eating from. And uh, as we said, mate, thanks so much for coming on, Chris. Chris Pleasure. Day from Everyday Sustainable Living. That was good. Thanks Thank for having me. Much. Yeah, no, that yeah. was awesome. Really thanks. enjoyed it. And thanks for listening. Thank you.